chapter 3, commencing to read from verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not uh, tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the multitations. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else think he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things are gained to me, these I count loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith, in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him, that I might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. I want to center some thoughts this evening upon that opening statement as found in verse 10 which says that I might know him, him, of course, being Jesus. And my title tonight is Knowing Jesus. We live at a time and in a period in which the sharing of information, the collecting of information seems to be so easy. And it seems to be that everybody from the grannies and grandas right down through the age ranges to the very young, would shout to the world, would say to the world, I'm here, I'm alive, and I want to tell you something about myself, even if that is only to tell you what they had for their breakfast that morning. But it seems to be that everybody has got on the bandwagon, some exceptions, to want to tell somebody about themselves. One survey has said that in a 24-hour period, the average individual is presented with some 30,000 separate pieces of information. Now, how they reached that conclusion, I have no idea. I read it, so I'm repeating it tonight. But we find from presidents, royalty, prime ministers, politicians, celebrities from the whole spectrum of society seem to be wanting to tell you, the one who's viewing on the computer, who's searching the net, something. Some of it's personal, some of it's not. But nevertheless, they want to put the, the information out there for you to find. And for those who follow the celebrities, there seems to be an ample supply of information. 
and yet they may follow the life of a particular celebrity. They may read, find out all the information concerning them, their lifestyle, what they've been involved in, what they're planning for the future. And because of that information, they may be able to talk at length about the, the, the celebrity that has captivated their attention. But if you were to ask them, have they met them? Do they know them? Have they spent time with them? Have they got to know them personally? The answer would be no. And you know, within the church today, there are those who are in a similar situation as regarding Jesus Christ. You know, I go, they go to church. They're regular attenders. They're committed to their church. They're involved in their church. If there's something to be attended to there, to the fore, offering their help, prepared to do whatever it takes to get the job done. They read their Bible. They pray. They know a lot about Jesus because of the reading of the Bible, because of sitting in church services. And they, they will enter into discussion and debate with you on things in the Scriptures. But yet, if you were to ask them, do they know Jesus? Do they know Jesus as their Savior? The answer would be no. Do you see, the first step in getting to know Jesus is getting saved. Up until that point, you only know about Jesus. But when you take that step of faith and you ask Jesus to come into your heart to forgive you your sins and to save you, you've entered upon that journey of getting to know Jesus. And yet, for such people, they can quote the scriptures. I've met some, and their, their knowledge of the scriptures and their ability to memorize chapter and verse is to be commended. And so I have to say, on some occasions, I felt very inadequate in their company because of what they are able to remember. But yet, they can quote the verses, they can refer to the verses, but they're failing to hear what the verses are saying. They're speaking the words, but not hearing the message at all. And even when you take them to the scriptures, there seems to be no response, no picking up on what the writer in the scriptures is actually saying. And as I think of these individuals, I think of the words of Jesus during his earthly ministry, when ministering to the multitude, where he spoke more than one occasion, he says, they that have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit would say unto them. And it seems to be that for these particular individuals, their ears are shut to things spiritual, open to everything in the world. They hear everything is going on, contrary to the scripture. But when it comes to the things of God, they don't seem to pick up on it. And you know, when, when you lead them to what the psalmist said, do you know, when he said, I was born in sin, in shape and iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And to take them to that point and say, you know that the psalmist is not just speaking of himself and his own life. He's speaking about all mankind. They look blankly at you. They don't seem to pick up on the message. And when you take them to Acts, or Romans 3 rather, and you tell them there, the scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They feel insulted. I've had those who were nearly 
start on me. So that I would t- have the audacity to tell them that they're sinners. They will tell you, we are good livers. We go to church. We're involved in our church. We live a good life. We don't do anybody any harm. And even when you take them to John 3, and there the encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He was a religious man. He was a ruler in the synagogue. He was a man who lived a high standard regarding life and observance of rules and regulations. And he came to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? And you know, Jesus didn't turn and say to him, just keep doing what you're doing. Carry on the way you are, you're okay. No, no. He says, you must be born again. And we know the discourse that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus on that point. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And then when you take them, of course, to Acts chapter 16, the story of the conversion of the Philippine jailer. We are aware well of the story of the earthquake, of the prison doors being opened, of the prisoners' shackles being released, and a man rushing into the jail, drawing a sword, about to commit suicide, imagining and assuming the worst. And Paul and Silas shouts out, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And he runs in and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The reality of Scripture points out that whether you're a good liver, whether you're religious, whether you're a church attender, or whether you're a non-church attender, just doing your best to get on with life, you need to be saved. And the way of salvation is the same for all, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Paul, writing in Ephesians 2, says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, for the Apostle Paul, he could identify with these religious people, with these churchgoers, with these ones who assumed they were all right, they were not in need of salvation. For he was religious, a Pharisee, one who grew up in a church, one who went to a church, one who was involved in a church, one who held even a high position within the church, one who was passionate about his church, one who was prepared even to rise up and defend his church, one who was living a life ruled by rules and regulations. What does he say in the verses we have read? As far as say, as regarding keeping the law, as regarding following rules and regulations, nobody could point the finger at him. For he, in his estimation, lived a perfect life at that particular time. And yet, passionate, sincere about his life, about the way he was living, the road he was traveling, the things he was getting involved in. Sincere, but sincerely wrong. And Jesus points this out to him as we find him on the road to Damascus. We're told that on that journey, in pursuit of what he thought was the right way, and what pursuit of what he thought was the right thing to do, 
Jesus meets them in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. Bright light appears, the sound of a noise. His traveling companions see the light, they hear a sound, but they don't know what's been said. And Jesus and Paul on the road to Damascus have a one-to-one. Jesus speaks, Paul speaks. Jesus reveals himself to Paul. Paul questions him. And after the light goes and Jesus departs, Paul finds himself blind, unable to pursue his ambitions, his plans, as he had anticipated. He requires his friends to lead him into Damascus, finds himself in Damascus. Instead of causing havoc to the Christian church, he finds himself in disarray in Simon the Tanner's house in the street called Straight. He finds himself praying. He finds himself calling on God. And we are informed that God sends Ananias to his help. Ananias prays with him. He receives his sight. He is baptized. He becomes a Christian. And we find him preaching the gospel in Philippi. On Damascus, sorry. Paul truly could say, the things I used to do, I do them no more. He could truly say, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The life he lived, the path he walked, the idea he pursued had all changed. From going down the wrong road, he's going down the right road. And yet, even in preaching the gospel in Damascus, he faces his first difficulty and opposition. For the Jews who were with him when he was going the wrong road, doing the wrong things, are now against him because he's doing the right thing. He's preaching the gospel. They lay in wait at the gates, their idea to capture him, to put him to death, but their plan is, is known to Paul, and he escapes in a basket down over the wall and makes his way to the Arabian desert. Paul, recounting the situation in Galatians 1, says, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again on to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Paul I like to think he was led of the Spirit into the Arabia. Where did he go in Arabia? What did he do? We can ask the questions, but we really don't have the answers. I feel very much he wasn't running away from opposition. He wasn't running away from his new calling in Christ. He wasn't running away from what God was asking him to do, but he was running towards Jesus in preparation for the fulfillment of the call of God on his life. Are we not reminded of in Exodus 3, there of Moses, who spent some 40 years in the wilderness? I often think of 40 years in the wilderness. Were they wasted years? No. They were years of preparation. As we think of Moses, alone, alone with the sheep and with God. What fellowship, what communion, what transpired, what took place, that when God appeared in the burning bush, Moses was ready 
for what God had for him to do. We think of Elijah. We read of him in 1 Kings 17. What does it say? Elijah wandered in such deserts before he came forth. He lived in Gilhead in the east, part of the Arabian desert. We know nothing of his early days, of his parents, or anything else about him. But all of a sudden, he just bursts on the scene. God, in those early years, was preparing him for what he required him to do. Luke even tells us of John the Baptist, that he was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel, and there grew and waxed strong in spirit. Also, Matthew reminds us of Jesus' time in the wilderness after his baptism, before being tempted of the devil. God, taking those who were about to embark upon a particular task, upon a particular journey for him, taking them aside, preparing them for what lay ahead. I feel Paul's time in Arabia was such a time as that. But where did he go in Arabia? Arabia, I'm told, covers approximately one million square miles. Some area to cover, easy to get lost in. But where did he go? We are reminded that God drew Moses to Mount Sinai, which is in the desert of Arabia. And there he communed with them. And there he gave them the Ten Commandments. Again, we are reminded in 1 Kings 19 that it was to a cave in the Mount Sinai that, that Elijah rushed to after he had slain the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Jezebel had issued a threat. He ran for his life. He made his way to the Mount Sinai. And there God met him. God spoke to him. God revigorated him. And God sent him on his way to complete the work that he had called him to do. Did Paul go to Mount Sinai? We may ask the question, but we don't know the answer. What took place there? We again don't know. Did he have an experience like that in which he speaks of in 2 Corinthians 12? How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Did his experience in Arabia, his contact with God, and what he heard was such, he couldn't repeat it, he couldn't tell it? Or was it like as it was on the road to Damascus, Jesus spoke to him a specific message that was solely for him. We can but only surmise. The writer in Acts 9 reminds us of what is said regarding Paul. For God said, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Did God reveal such to him? While we know so much about Paul, there's so much we yet do not know. The apostles were three years under the ministry and instruction of the greatest teacher ever, Jesus himself. Paul, a young man, one who had been trained for one profession, one calling, that of a Pharisee. He is now to prepare himself for another and very different calling as a minister of Jesus Christ. A preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles, an apostle to the world. And surely we are grateful to him for his writings, for what is contained within God's word. 
he wrote them under the anointing of Almighty God. He declares himself in Colossians 1 and 25, whereof I am a minister. And yet Paul suffered much for the sake of the gospel. His life was not a bed of roses. It was not without trials. It was not without difficulties. He gives us a little insight into what he had uh, under... Getting tongue-tied, sorry. He gave us an insight into what he went through and what he experienced in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, of the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes, save one. Three times was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in pearls of water, in pearls of robbers, in pearls of mine countrymen, in pearls by the heathen, in pearls in the city, in pearls in the wilderness, in pearls in the sea, in pearls among false brethren. When did these things happen? When did these take place? There seems to be no record. There's a record in Acts 14 where he was stoned by the Jews and left for dead. In Acts 16, where he was beaten by, with rods by the Jews in Philippi. And in Acts 27, when he was shipwrecked on his way to Rome. And yet, we have, that's all we have. Many things that he experienced, many things that he faced are not recorded. It would seem all in Scripture. And so we come full circle back to the portion we have read. Paul is found a prisoner in Rome. Not a prisoner in a damp cell with feet in the stocks as he was in Philippi, but nevertheless a prisoner. He has found favor with his captors and they have permitted him to rent a house. He's under house arrest. He's in chains. He has a 24-hour guard with him, but he has a freedom and liberty to visit have, and have visitors to him. The reason he's there is found in Acts 24 where the Jews tried to kill him and only for the intervention of the Roman soldiers he would have been killed. The subsequent outcome was that in his court case he appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen and so we find him in Rome. My research would suggest that Paul has been some 50 years in ministry at this moment in time. This is A.D. 62. He's had many experiences, tremendous experiences, sad experiences, difficult experiences, and now he finds himself in chains under house arrest in Rome. His concern is not for himself, it's not for his situation, but is for the church. And so he writes what we refer to as the prison epistles. And he's writing to the church at Philippi. He does not know what the future holds. He does not know what the future holds for himself, for the church, what challenges the church will face, what challenges he will face. And here he is writing to the church at Philippi. He wants them to be ready for whatever arrives at their door. Pastor made reference to some of it this morning. He warns them. He instructs them. 
He tells them to be ready, not to take things for granted, to be prepared for what may arrive at the door. And then he makes this statement. And I believe in so doing, he's pouring out his heart. He's making a statement of longing and passion and desire. And he says that I might know him. And in that statement, I believe he's making a profound statement to the church at Philippi who would read what he has written. That my relationship with Jesus is what has got me where I am thus far in life and will get me to journey's end. And if this is my passion, this should also be your passion also. For Paul, he could in some way identify with Daniel as he found himself in the lion's den, not because he had done things that were wrong, but because he had taken a stand, because he had been faithful and true to the word of God. Paul could identify with that. Paul had suffered much for the sake of the gospel for taking his stand. He could identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they faced the fiery furnace. It tells us the furnace was heated seven times hotter than it normally was. And for those who threw them into the furnace, they were killed because of the intense heat. But yet what does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? O king, if we perish, we perish. But if the Lord spares us and saves us, we will still not bow the knee. Paul could identify with such sentiment and such a statement. He had suffered, and he had suffered much, due to, not because of wrongdoing, but because he had remained faithful to the belief and trust in Jesus Christ. I found myself in the book room in Lurgan some weeks ago and I was browsing and I was looking at some Bible folders, you know, the ones with the zip on them, and one caught my eye and on it was printed this line, this book is banned in 52 countries in the world. And when I read that statement, my mind began to think of the countries and I, I, no, I thought of China, I thought of Egypt, in Iraq and Vietnam and Afghanistan and Korea and such countries. And then as I was standing, stirring and reading, I read it over quite a few times, the question arose, could it happen here? Could it happen in this land? Will there be a day in which this book, this Bible, will be banned in this land? For the church today is facing many challenges. It will face many challenges in the future. And I believe that the outcome will depend very much as individuals upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. The attack has already started. It's coming from two fronts. We have governments passing laws that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture. We have Christians who have already been brought before the courts because of the stance that they have taken on God's word. And then, of course, we have the church itself. Within certain areas, they have opened the doors. They have welcomed in. They have openly embraced that which is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. 
that was just contrary to the things of God. So the challenge for the church is already happening. And the question will be, how well do we know Jesus? Because that will determine how things progress for us as individuals. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he died on the cross to pay the price for your sin? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead and lives forevermore? Do you believe that you're a sinner in need of salvation and without salvation you're heading to a lost eternity? Do you agree with that? If you do tonight, all that you're required to do is say, please Jesus, forgive me my sins and save me. Jesus made it so simple. Believe. Ask, receive. Not only will he forgive you your sins, not only will he save you, but you will have entered upon the greatest journey and road of discovery known to mankind, that of getting to know Jesus. If you've taken that step, stand tonight. If you've taken that step of faith, tell somebody so that we can support you and pray for you. Maybe you'll say to me, well, do you know what I did that years ago? And you can recount to me X number of years when you took that stand. But the question I would ask, how well do you know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? I've met those in the past and their relationship with Jesus is on a very casual basis. I describe them as those who treat Jesus as a breakdown service. You know, when you insure your car, your insurance company offers you 24 breakdown recovery service and you take it as part of the deal. You don't talk to them. You don't contact them. You don't have any contact whatsoever with them when everything's going well. But as soon as the car breaks down, they're the first number you ring. And when you ring them, you expect a response, a quick, fast response. And there are those who treat Jesus and their relationship with Jesus is on that basis. You know, I've had them on the phone. Pastor, we're in trouble. Pastor, I need help. Pastor, can I come and see you? Or pastor, can you come and see me? Or they knocked at the door. You know, you're sitting. And the door knocks. And you look at the clock and you say, who on earth thought at this hour of the night? And you go to the door and there's somebody in distress. And you minister to them. You pray for them. You pray with them. You help them. And during that period of difficulty, their attendance at church, their involvement in church, their commitment to the things of God improves. But then when the problem is resolved, the difficulty is passed, they go back to their old way and their old habits. You may say to me, well, do you know, I don't treat Jesus like that. Jesus and me, we're in good, good terms. Jesus is a good friend. We, I spend time with them every day. I read my Bible. I pray with them every day. Well, I praise God for that. Because if we are to grow in the things of God, those are things we need to be doing. We know in the natural, if we neglect eating a balanced, proper diet, our physical frame is going to suffer. 
And in the same way, when we neglect the word of God, when we neglect our time with God, our spiritual life will suffer. But I feel the Apostle Paul would go a step further and he would say that Jesus is his best friend. You know when you have a best friend, you want to spend as much time as you can in their company. You want to be found in conversation with them and also you want to hear them talk and hear what they have to say. Apostle Paul, that was his relationship with Jesus. He was his best friend. He wanted to spend every waking moment with them. He wanted to just be in his presence to speak to him, but also to listen and to hear what he had to say. And the question is this evening, is Jesus your best friend? Do you enjoy to be found in his company, to talk to him, to hear him speak. You know, the founders of the world religions, they have lived. They have died. Their tombs are with us today. And you know something? Their tombs are occupied. And for those who follow those religions, they can only get to know about them. You can only get to know about a person who has died. You can't get to know a you can only, can't get to know a person who is dead. You only get to know about them. And Jesus lived. Jesus died. His tomb is with us. But you know, the tomb is empty. What did the angels say to those on resurrection morn to the ladies? Come see the place where the Lord lay. He's not here. He is risen. His tomb is empty, not because the, the guards on duty were bribed to say the disciples came and stole him away. But he is risen. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the disciples in Galilee. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to some 500 at one time. And what does Luke say? In summing up the whole thing, he says he appeared as many infallible proofs over a period of the 40 days. The writer in Proverbs has recorded the words of God in Proverbs 8 and 17, in which God says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. This is God's desire. This is God's longing. This is his Jesus' desire. This is Jesus' longing. He's not playing hide and seek. He's not like Adam and Eve who went and hid themselves from the presence of God. God wants us to find him. He wants us to get to know him. He wants us, to, that bond that we have with him, to grow and grow and grow. Mark Pendergrass wrote the chorus, The greatest thing in all my life is loving you. And Paul knew what it was to love Jesus. The second verse goes on to say, the greatest thing in all my life is serving you. And Paul knew what it was to serve you, serve him. But the third verse says, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. And Paul, longing and desire 
was that he may know Jesus. In writing that statement, I believe Paul is pouring out his very soul, his very being, and he's saying, my longing, my desire above all else, that I might know Jesus. And in so doing, he's saying to the church at Philippi, what is my desire should also be your desire. Have we a longing? Have we a desire to get to know Jesus? Many say we love him. Many will go out of their way to serve him. But how many will really make the effort to get to know him? Paul writing to Timothy, he says, For I know in whom I have believed. Jesus is real. Wasn't a figment of his imagination. Wasn't something he had imagined. But real, personal, he knew in whom he had believed. He also wrote to Timothy and said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. At the end of life, there was nothing left undone. It all had been attended to. What God had asked of him, what God had required of him, had been completed. It was his relationship, I believe, with Jesus that made the difference, that brought him right through all life's experiences and happenings. We're on the verge of entering a new year. And at this time of year, I find myself meditating, reflecting, reflecting on the year that has gone, anticipating the year that lies ahead. And if my calculations are right, we have some 22 days left in this old year, should the Lord tarry. There's many uncertainties still lie before us. The new year will no doubt have its challenges, its trials, its difficulties. But you know there's one who knows all things. There's one who will never be surprised no matter what happens. One who will be never taken unaware no matter what happens. And when we are walking with Jesus, when we place our hand in the hand of Jesus and say, Lord, God willing, as I step into this year, I don't know what this year holds, but you do. And I'm placing myself into your hands. Paul, what happened to him? He was held prisoner for some two years. And those who had brought the accusation against him failed to travel to Rome to present their case. So Caesar said there was no case to answer. He was released approximately A.D. 64. And for approximately two plus years, he preached in Rome and the surrounding area. And I understand he was joined by Peter as well. But in A.D. 67, the emperor Nero rose up. He persecuted the church. He blamed them for starting the great fire of Rome. During that period, many Christians lost their lives in terrible ways, including the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Paul, in prison in Rome, didn't know what lay before him. But he was prepared because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I believe there's a need for the church today when things aren't as drastic as they could get to prepare, to be ready. We know what it is to prepare for certain events, to make preparation for situations in life. Let's be prepared for what may lay ahead of us by depending on Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by building up that relationship with Jesus. Paul says that I might know him. I believe that was a cry from the very soul of himself, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. For my Jesus isn't dead. His tomb's in the, in the graveyard, but a senpai. He's glorified, he's risen, and he's ascended. He's living and reigning in me. Scripture tells me I'm a temple of the living God, seen and read of all men. Is Jesus your best friend tonight? If he isn't, I trust you will make it your business to make sure he is before very long. Thank you.